we began in Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 and 2, we said, are kind of the, the front porch of the Psalms, the, the pillars you have to pass through to get into the Psalter. They're intentionally arranged here to introduce us to the Psalter, and so we looked last week at Psalm 1, now we look at Psalm 2. So follow along as I read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. This is the word of God. About a week ago, or a little bit more, uh, Pastor John MacArthur in California of Grace Community Church wrote an open letter to Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. In it, he rebuked the governor for his blasphemous use of Mark chapter 12, in support of abortion, uh, billboards that he was putting and saying, love your neighbor as yourself, as uh, a blasphemous attempt to co-opt the Lord's words. He also informed the governor of his rebellion against God and the perilous state of his soul. He urged him, in conclusion, to repent of his sin, to turn to the Lord Jesus and to find salvation and refuge in him. Now, of course, uh, someone could write a letter to many of our leaders like this almost daily, right? And, but there are some things that rise to the occasion uh, for an individual uh, or a pastor to address a particular uh, issue. And for Pastor MacArthur, this issue of abortion and his, uh, Gavin Newsom's dogged support for it um, was what drew the uh, concern for him. And particularly, if you read the letter, and I encourage you to do so, it's online. Uh, I think you can find it on Grace to You, probably the easiest. Uh, you'll find that it's really not political. It's purely, uh, it's really focused on this man's soul and his concern that what he is doing and saying gives evidence to the deadness of his soul and the judgment he will face from the Lord. And as a ruler of people, he is held to God's standard nevertheless. And so as he calls him then to repent, he calls him to trust in the Lord Jesus as his hope. He genuinely uh, expresses concern for this man's soul. And we could say the same for our president as well, uh, who supports the very same thing and uh, we should have a great concern for his soul. We are commanded to pray, and uh, we, we do for our leaders, from presidents down to governors to senators and congressmen, um, many of which uh, do not know Christ and need to. And so, yes, we have political concerns, but we also have concerns for these people's souls as well. And it can be 
as we look around in our world and watch our news feeds and look at them, there can be great consternation in our hearts. There can be great fears. There can be great worries. And it, that's the perspective we're getting so often. And it depends on how much you watch the news. Maybe you stopped watching the news because of all the heartburn that you get and frustration. Uh, what's so great about Psalm 2 is it gives us the divine perspective. It, it brings us back uh, to sanity and clarity. When we look at an insane world, we start to see, uh, we, we can panic and, and, and have all kinds of various uh, responses and emotions, but when we come to Psalm 2, it reorients us to God's perspective on kings, rulers, and every individual, uh, for that matter, and their relationship to the Lord Jesus. In his classic work of fiction entitled Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift recounts the journey of Gulliver, and uh, I read this book some years ago, and it's a fascinating book. And, uh, of course, Gulliver, uh, he lands on this island of Lilliput, and the island of Lilliput has, uh, he, he, he finds himself to be a giant there, and these people are like, you know, six inches tall compared to Gulliver. And uh, he finds himself on the island tied down uh, with ropes, like thousands of ropes from the Lilliputians. And he has the little king of the Lilliputians standing on his chest and kind of talking to him. And, uh, and he, he finds it, it's, it's kind of a humorous uh, part of the story because Gulliver is so easily able to just break off of these, uh, these shackles that they've put upon him as, as this giant. And uh, a preacher pointed out years ago, and I thought it was such a perfect picture of what's happening in Psalm 2, this very illustration that it's, it's very much like unto the Lilliputians trying to put their face in Gulliver's, uh, put their finger into Gulliver's face and, uh, and think that they have some kind of sovereignty over him when in fact they are so weak and small in comparison. And here we have nations and kings who are asserting themselves and their dominance in light of God's power and sovereignty. How silly. What this illustrates for us is the irrationality of insurrection against God. It illustrates the ridiculousness of rebellion against God by sinful man. It describes, as one person said, the mutiny of mankind against God's appointed king. We are living in days in which almost any direction you look, it seems as though our nation is in rebellion against God. Many have pointed out Romans 1 is uh, not only individually speaking about sinners, but you can see how nations follow the path of Romans 1 as God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then you see this progression downward. And you can see it in people's lives individually, but you can also see it in nations. And in Romans 1, you can see how our nation has been given over by God to impurity as seen in the past sexual revolution. You can see how God has given over our nation then further, the one step down from that, to dishonorable passions seen in the homosexual revolution, then given over to what Paul calls a debased mind, which I think just fits a category of all kinds of insanity in thought and action, which would include the inability to distinguish between male and female, uh, where a Supreme Court justice will not say, though she knows in her heart of hearts what a man is and a woman is, will not say what a woman is in distinction from a man. This is the debased mind that we have now. And so many other things as well. The, the uh, insanity and debased mind that would just basically say, you can murder your baby just so long as you don't want it. If you want it, then we will mourn with you over the loss of your child. But if you don't want it, we will celebrate with you that you uh, have the so-called right to an abortion. And this is how crazy our world has become. And then Romans 1 ends with, they not only do them, these things, but give approval to those who practice them. A celebration of all these things. And, and a celebration so much so that to to go against any of these uh, beliefs and uh, worldviews is now hatred. It's totally flip-flop. So if you take a stance of biblical morality, which has been the same for 
2,000 years or beyond that, you know, New Testament morality and then beyond into the Old Testament, you, you, you find yourself on what we might call the wrong side of history. Uh, I, what did I entitle this sermon? I entitled it <laughs> Submission to the Sovereign. I thought of a new title of Getting on the Right Side of History. Getting on the Right Side of History because the right side of history is submitting to the sovereign. Dale Ralph Davis says this, amid all of this, we need perspective. And, and here's what he says. Psalm 2 says that you must know where history is going. You must see the whole show. You must understand that the world has been promised to the Messiah. So you need to get on the right side of history and kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In these days where we live in paganism, we live in the worship of Molech, when you look at the Old Testament and you go, wow, how could they worship Molech and bring their babies and sacrifice them on the hot, burning uh, iron hands of Molech? You go, I can, I can understand exactly what that's like because that's where we live. Maybe a little bit more, uh, less crude, in, you might say, in, in hidden away in, in doctor's offices, so-called, but we live in Molech worship. People are pagan. We live in a pagan nation. We live in a post-Christian nation. And I heard someone say this week, uh, we live in a pre-Christian nation because it's as if the gospel never even came here to our nation. That's how pagan our nation has become. And so Psalm 2 then reorients us back to sanity. It is a royal psalm as it speaks about a king in Israel, and it's a messianic psalm because it is David writing about a future descendant of his who is to rule. Uh, David is the author of this, even though it doesn't say it in the psalm, because Acts 4 tells us that David wrote uh, by the Spirit, and then it quotes part of Psalm 2. So David is the author. But David is not writing about himself here as this king, nor is he writing about just any other Israelite king that came after him. He's writing about a particular king, the Messiah. David knew that there was a Messiah coming, and David knew that that Messiah would be resurrected after he died as a substitute. We'll see that in Psalm 16. He has that hope. And so David wasn't a dummy. David knew that there was a coming Messiah, and he writes about him in this psalm. Now, this is one of my favorite psalms for lots of reasons. One is because it uh, is very Trinitarian, it breaks into four equal parts, each with a different speaker. You have the world speaking in verses 1 to 3. Then you have the Father speaking in verses 4 to 6. Then you have the Son in verses 7 to 9. And then the Spirit's appeal in verses 10 to 12. So it's very Trinitarian in its architecture. Let there be light. <laughs> And, 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 it, and so, and it moves seamlessly from one speaker to the next as it builds this uh, argument. So let, let's look at it in this way, and we'll point out the speakers as we go along. We'll notice first in our outline, the world's absurd rebellion. The world's absurd rebellion in verses 1 to 3. Look there again. Why do, do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Within the human heart, there is a universal longing to rule oneself, to have self-autonomy. Every human being is seeking personal autonomy in one way or another. And, and we can see this in a broad way in culture. Uh, and it, makes, it, it can make sense now from a biblical worldview when you see people who say, I want to determine if I'm male or female. I get to determine that, not God. And you can see there's this internal, what is behind that? It is an internal desire to say, I am the king. I am the queen. I am the sovereign over everything. And I can change who I am simply by willing it. It's the self-autonomy. Some express it, uh, express this longing for self-sovereignty more overtly, and others express it more covertly. And yet every human being has this inborn desire to rule themselves. 
And, and with that desire comes a desire then to be free from God's authority. To rule oneself means you will not have another to rule over you. This is the Tower of Babel. This is the, an early expression of that. They don't want God as king, as authority, and so they will, they will establish a city for themselves, the city of man. And they'll seek to overthrow God as king. You see this, if you fast forward to the Jews and the Romans at Christ's first coming, who were unified together in their plan to crucify the Messiah. In Acts chapter 4, 25 to 26, you see you know, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews coming together and, you know, it's like the enemy, of my, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And see, the Jews and the Romans, not friends, <laughs> typically. But to come against God, and, and more particularly to come against his Messiah and his king, they can agree on that. And in the end of history, just prior to Christ's return, the nations will be, again, unified in their attempt to fight against Messiah. So much so that they will align themselves with a figure who will be the most opposed to Messiah than anyone could be. A figure who will set himself up as God in contrast to Christ. The psalmist begins with a question. David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now the why here in the beginning is not seeking information. He's not going like, why? Why are they doing this? You know, it's really a why of amazement and astonishment. Like, why against God? Why do they rage against God? He, he, he's asking this why as to, to say, how ludicrous is this? How irrational is this? How ridiculous to rage against God? He says, this is a vain thing. They plot in vain. It's empty. And that's the idea of, of vain. It, it will not succeed. Professor mine had a sticker on his office, uh, of his office door, his study, that said, it had two names. It had Nietzsche and then God. And, and then a quote from each of them. And so, so it said Nietzsche, and then it said, quote, God is dead. And this is a famous quote of Nietzsche. Uh, then it had God, and it quotes, Nietzsche is dead. Right? I think I've said that to you before. <laughs> uh, and... That's how ridiculous this is. That's how absurd that this rebellion is. Notice the plural. Nations, peoples, kings. What we see here is this is a worldwide rebellion. This is everyone. This is all-encompassing. These nations and peoples and kings cannot agree on most things. But here is something they can find agreement upon. Agreement in the rebellion against God's authority. Like, right? You can't pass certain laws. You can't, you know, bipartisan support. Here's something you get bipartisan support for. Throwing off God's authority. The text says that they plot. And that's actually, the ESV has plot. It's actually the word meditate. It's the same word in chapter 1, verse 2. That the blessed man meditates on God's law day and night. Here, they're meditating in a different way. And here's where you see the connection between these two psalms. These are meant to go together. It starts with a blessing in Psalm 1. It ends with a blessing in the end of Psalm 2. Here's another connection where you see this meditation language. They're thinking, they're musing, they're plotting, they're meditating. How they might be free of God's authority. How they might transgress God's authority. What's a new way that we could pass the boundaries of God's authority? Verse 2 shows them, uh, coming together to oppose God and his anointed. Verse 2, look there. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Saying. And then they're going to give their speech. This counsel is uh, similar, once again, to Psalm 1. The counsel of the wicked. Right? Here is the counsel of the wicked. And they are against the Messiah, the anointed, it says. This anointed is a, is a term for Messiah or Christ. The word Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed. The word Christ is the Greek tra trans, uh, translation of the word for anointed. So they're very much related, Messiah, Christ. Anointing was done uh, to, 
an individual, person, or king in particular, to uh, set them apart for their office. And it was done by pouring oil on their head, and it symbolized the anointing of the Holy Spirit to empower them for their task. And so this is, uh, you could have an anointed king, but you have the anointed, and that's why it's often capitalized. It's speaking about the particular anointed, the Messiah, this individual. Now, what I want you to see here is that there is, yes, a universal opposition to God's uh, sovereignty in general by the world, but there is a universal uh, opposition to God's sovereign in particular. Not just his sovereignty in general, yes, that's part of it, but his sovereign, his anointed, his Messiah. There is opposition in particular against him. That's what this text is saying, to set themselves against his anointed. Oh yes, our culture loves a lot of caricatured views of Christ, and a lot of Jesus is in their own making, but the Jesus of the Bible is someone they hate. They will have none of. Verse 3 expresses their declaration of independence from God's authority. Verse 3 says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bursting bonds, casting away cords, is a way to speak of rebellion. Rebellion. Why do people not want to submit to God? Well, in part, we might say that because in verse 3, they view his authority as shackles. They view it as shackles. That's the way they perceive God's authority and his law, his commands. They are binding upon them in such an oppressive way. And why would they view it that way? Well, the underlying cause behind that is because they love their sin. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. We don't come to the light, John says in John 3, because they loved the darkness, lest their deeds would be exposed by coming into the light. This is the, this is the condition of mankind. They so love their sin that they hate God's authority and they view it as oppressive to them and their self-sovereignty. Those who reject God's authority over them make his rule out to be bondage. Instead of viewing God's revelation as loving, he drew us with cords of love. They view it as oppressive. One person said they are lawless because they are aweless. Spurgeon said, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. James Boyce said, this is what sin is, a repudiation of God's rule in favor of one's own will. As we might say that from this psalm and this text, which is very helpful for us, that we could say that the essence of sin is self-sovereignty. The essence of sin is self-sovereignty. And this can be summarized well in the words of Luke chapter 19, verse 14. It says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man to reign over us. That is the ultimate expression of self-sovereignty. We don't want Christ to reign over us. And so that's the essence of it, self-sovereignty. I want what I want. We can see this in all kinds of expressions. When we have interpersonal conflicts, it's really because we want our way. I'm the king. I'm the queen. This is my kingdom. You're in my domain. You're affecting the way I rule my kingdom, and therefore I'm going to punish you. I have a law, and I punish people who infringe upon the law of my land. And, and you can see how our sin continues to express itself that way. When our desires are infringed upon, that we have elevated too high and made idols of, then we punish. We, we put out a decree. Maybe it's a decree of silence and we, we, go, we go cold on someone. And, or maybe it's a decree of lashing out at someone in anger. But we do all these things because someone encroaches upon our self-sovereignty. So the question we must first ask is, of verses 1 to 3 in application is, do you find yourself in agreement with verses 1 to 3? Is that, are those your people? <laughs> Yes, they were your people, if you are a Christian, but are they your people right now? 
Do you find God's ways liberating or restricting? Do you view God's commands as chains and restraints upon you and what you really want to do, if you were honest, or and, and what you desire to break free from? Or do you love God, though you struggle at times to obey him? You want to have his rule in your life. Do you long to be free and do things your way? Or be free to obey God without restraint? If that is the place you find yourself of wanting to break free, you find yourself aligned with people in verses 1 to 3, it is a very dangerous place that you are in. And you need to listen to the rest of this psalm as it continues. But just step back for Christians and say, how encouraging the assessment of the Bible. Yes, it's a, it's a gloom and, 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 and glum <laughs> description, but isn't that what we see in the world? Like, isn't this what we perceive week in, week out in the news? Nations, kings, rulers, and then individuals who are asserting their self-sovereignty. It's actually proof that the Bible is true. Like when someone rejects the gospel and rejects God's authority, you go, see, you're proving my point. Like, right, you're trying to show the gospel, and they're like, I don't believe in Christ, I don't, I don't love Christ, and, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I want to do my own thing. Ultimately, you're like, exactly. That's what the Bible says about you. It's diagnosed you correctly. And so it actually affirms that the Bible is true. And that's an encouragement to us that, okay, we're not crazy. This is how the Bible says people are. And we are if we're not Christians, and, and we were if, uh, if we are Christians, and, and even still struggle with this, this tendency to want to rule ourselves. Now, this is the world's absurd rebellion. How does God react to this universal plot against him? How does he respond to the mutiny of mankind? Well, here, secondly, we see the Father's confident response. The Father's confident response in verses 4 to 6. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs. That's how he responds. One writer said, this isn't a laughter of hilarity, but of derision, of mockery, of contempt. This is a holy and a righteous laughter. Notice as well, along with this laughter, the posture and position as he laughs. First, he's sitting. He who sits. Notice uh, also that he sits in the heavens, right? They're the kings of the earth. It's contrasted with God sitting in the heavens laughing. Just to give you an example of God sitting here. Uh, Psalm 29, verse 10. Yahweh sits enthroned over the flood. Yahweh sits enthroned as king forever. He's sitting where? On his throne. This is the universal reign of the triune God. Never changes, never fluctuates. God is always on his throne, ruling over all universally. He sits in the heavens in contrast to the kings who are on the earth. And so the ultimate sovereign over all is in heaven on his throne. And I love the picture of, you know, a, a father who's playing with his child, and, um, and the kid wants to wrestle, and so the dad just like puts out 10% capacity and holds his, his kid down, and you know, when they're little, and shows him the strength, and I think actually gives security to the child. It's like, okay, my dad's strong. He can protect me, but it's like, you know, dad, come on, give me more, give me more, and it's like, you don't want more, son. You don't want more, and of course, your kids can get older, and then you get more frail, and, uh, and then, then they can, you know, do, okay, but the point is, when they're younger, you know, they're so small sometimes, you could just like hold their head, and they're like, you know, it's like, son, your arms are too short to box with God is the idea. And, and so here is this, this picture here of God laughing. What, what are you going to do? Isaiah gives us some amazing pictures of this reality as well to set in our minds. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 
You're like, hey, the scale isn't, I'm, this is how I made a coffee reference last week, the chaff and coffee. I'm, I'm kind of a coffee snob. Uh, I weigh my beans, uh, you know, to, to get the right amount, water to bean ratio. Okay, so I put it on the scale, and you have to tear the scale down to zero, and like, and sometimes you put in a bean, it like doesn't register, you know, anything. And it's like, okay, put two beans. Okay, there we go. Now it's starting to register. It's like, this is like a drop of dust. It like doesn't even register the scale. You're like, wait, did you put anything on it? No, put some more on. No, still nothing. Put some more. Okay, there. Now finally registering. It's like, this is like a piece of dust. It doesn't even register on the scale. Like, is there something on there? Yeah, all the nations. <laughs> it's like, that's the idea. It's like, it doesn't even register. It doesn't even, it doesn't even move the scale. Verse 17 of Isaiah 40. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So it's like, it's as if the, the scale, sometimes it's like, if you, if you tear the scale and then uh, and you take something off, it'll go into negative mode. It's like, that, he's like, it's less than nothing. You're in negatives now. Enough about scales. <laughs> Verse 22, the same chapter. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Oh, they just got elected. Oh, they're just starting their first hundred days. Gone. (laughs) That's what it's saying. Scarcely are they planted. Does he establish them in his sovereignty? And then, boom, they're gone. David next then moves back to Psalm 2. From God's laughter to his anger. Verse 5 says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. These images of like the flaring of the nostrils in anger. God's settled disposition towards unrighteousness is his anger. It, it's not God flying off the hook. It's he is settled in his disposition, his anger. God's response to the sinful rebellion uh, of his creatures is his righteous response of anger. This is a terrifying anger. Listen to Revelation 6, 15 to 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. God's answer to the rebellion of the nations is to establish his king. You remember, that's Revelation 6 we just read. Revelation 5, remember, it's, you know, who is worthy to open this scroll? This scroll is like the title deed to the earth. And it's got all these seals upon it. And think of a scroll is rolled up. Inside is the message. And so as you unroll it, you get more of the message. And there's these seals that only the king can open. Only the right person can open. And they're saying, who can open this? Who can? And there's weeping and there's crying. And then it's like, here's one. Here's one who can open it. It's the Messiah. It's the one who is truly God, truly man. And he has given his life as a substitute for sinners. He's been raised from the dead. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And it's just a matter of time before he breaks the first seal. And what happens? Judgment unleashed upon the earth. And then in chapter 6, you have the kings and the nations who are usurpers now. And here's the king of kings coming and beginning to execute his judgment upon the earth before he returns. And they say, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. He has the right to rule and will rule. And so verse 6 of Psalm 2 says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 3 began with, let us. Verse 6 begins with, as for me. This passage is prophetic. What it does is it anticipates the future rule of Christ on and from the earth as king in Jerusalem. It's spoken of in the past to show how certain this is. I've established my king. The eternal God views it as a done deal. This idea of set, he's installed him as king. Zion refers to a particular place of Israel. Uh, We're told that Jesus will return in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem to rule from Zion, splitting the Mount of Olives when he returns. Michael Vlock writes this. He says, The reign of God will occur in the same place where opposition to him is presently occurring. So Christ has to come and reign where he's being opposed right now. 
Now, Christ presently has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. He's at the right hand of the Father, sitting on the Father's throne, we're told in Revelation 2, 23 and 24. And yet, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Vlach goes on and writes, says, While the identity of this king and son is now revealed in Jesus the Messiah, the complete fulfillment of the psalm awaits Jesus' second coming when he assumes the Davidic throne and reigns upon the earth. So yes, we talked about the universal reign of God. The, the son, father, and spirit reign universally, eternally, but the son in his incarnational resurrection glory is coming to reign upon this earth and dash to pieces the current nations of the world. And so when the world seems out of order, constantly changing, constantly raging, and you hear the leaders of the world raging, you hear individuals raging on TikTok, and other, maybe you're not on TikTok, that's good. Uh, uh, you hear them raging, hear the laughter of God as well. Keep Psalm 2 in your newsfeed. And so this is the Father's response. Now we see Third, the son's certain reign. The son's certain reign. He's spoken about installing his king on Zion. Now we see that reign. Now the son speaks. The son's certain reign, verses 7 to 9. Once again, like we said, the speaker changes again. For the nations, in the first three verses, we hear the father's response. In the next three, now we hear the son describing his reign. He says, I will tell of the decree. The decree um, may refer to the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. God made this promise to David to set one of his descendants upon his throne to make a dynasty for him and a prediction ultimately of the Messiah. But a decree in, in, in its very nature expresses the plan of God from all of eternity. We talk about the decree of God. Richie's been talking about that in Sunday school. God's decree his, his plan for all of history. So I, hear, I think here is the son describing the father's plans for his reign, which, yes, is articulated as he gives it in history to David in 2 Samuel 7, but was already the case. His plan is decree from all eternity. And so notice three aspects of the reign of the son that we see in this text. Notice first the legitimacy of his reign, the legitimacy of his reign in verse 7. I will tell the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. All right, I'm going to warn you. Put on your thinking cap for a second. Uh, we're going to go deep for a few seconds, and I promise we'll come back up for air. And if you don't follow everything, that's okay, but I think it's good to think about this for a second, and I think it will bring some worship for us uh, as we understand more of who the son is. Okay, warning given. Okay, so what are we talking about here? He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This anointed one is a son. And that's language that goes to 2 Samuel 7, 14 in the Davidic covenant, that he would have a son. He would be like a son to him. This is also a language that would connect us back to Adam, who is the son of God, and, and then to Israel, who is called a son. So he's connecting this figure, this messianic figure, to Adam, to Israel, and to David, and to the kingly line. And the answer is yes, it's connected to all of those. Now, on first reading, this temporal language of today and the language of begotten may confuse we think today, okay, that's like temporal, that's time right now, today. Begotten, okay, well, that happens in, in a moment of time. Someone is born. And so we have to ask the question, did the second person of the triune God, the Son, Father, Son, and Spirit, the second person become the Son at a particular point in time? Or has he always been the Son? Because it says, today I've begotten you as a Son. No, the Son has always been the Son from all eternity. We must remember that we are using finite terms to describe the infinite God. And so, if we think about this in the context of a coronation of a king, and a son becoming king because he is begotten of his father, 
it doesn't become as hard to grasp. If we can see these time-oriented language being applied to the eternal God just to help us grasp a little bit, even though God is timeless, it, we, we can be helped. Now, we know this. Okay, how is it that a son becomes king? Just in human terms. Because their father's a king, right? They have the same royal blood in their veins. They share the same family heritage and genealogy, and so they have a right to rule in that sense. And so to declare the son as begotten is to say this. Abner Chow writes this, quote, Son, we share something together and have something in common. This is the reason you share the same status that I have, even though we are distinct persons, father and son. And so this is really helpful because even in this psalm, we see a, a unity and a distinction between these two figures, between father and son. There's a unity together by which there may be the right to rule, the legitimacy, and yet there's a distinction because the son isn't the father and the father isn't the son. And now we're getting at just some of the basic elementary building blocks of the triune God. The son shares the same nature and essence as the father and yet is distinct from the father. Unity of essence, distinction of personhood. The father, we might say it like this, has eternally shared himself with the son from all eternity. You're like, that's kind of hard to, to get. Theologians have called this doctrine the eternal generation of the Son. And you even think about that terminology. Eternal, that's like forever, right? That's like not time-bound. Generation, that's very time-bound language. And so you're putting these two together to describe something that's incomprehensible. And yet this is, and this alone, is what distinguishes the Father from the Son. That the Son has eternally been begotten of the Father, and the Father is not begotten by the Son, and, and the Spirit proceeds from both the sp Father and the Son. Now, there's a helpful passage in John chapter 5 that teaches this doctrine, and uh, John chapter 5, verse 26, it says, for, Jesus says, for as the Father has life in himself. That's the doctrine of what we call aseity. It means God is self-sufficient. He has life in himself. He doesn't depend on anything or anyone for his life. It is inherent to him. So as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And so they call this the eternal generation because it doesn't happen at a point in time. So it's not as though there was never a time when the Son was not. The Son has always been with the Father and the Spirit. And yet, here's the language the Scripture gives of him receiving this life from the Father. He, he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And yet, we think of this and we go, okay, there's got to be a time then when he, wasn't, he didn't have this life, and then he did. But eternal generation is trying to say, no, he's always had this. This is the relation, though, between Father and Son. The Father's constantly giving himself to the Son, giving of himself, giving of himself. And that's the language the scriptures give us. This is why the, 1 John will speak about Jesus as, and the life was made manifest. The life was made manifest. Because he's constantly receiving his life from the Father, from all eternity. So the begetting in this verse, in Psalm 2, and Hebrews 1, which quotes it, is an event that takes place uh, that is not an event that takes place in time. It is, in, it is happening eternally, if you can grasp that, okay? Now, the context in Psalm 2 is a decree. God's decree is something that it's eternal. It has been forever. And so the Father, you think about it like this, the Father is eternally, there's the decree idea, he's eternally saying, you are my son, you are my son, you are my son, and I am pleased with you for all eternity, He's eternally begetting, giving his life to the Son. Here's a quote from a systematic theology. It says it better. It says this, Within the realm of creation, the term begotten speaks of the origin of one's offspring. In the design of God, each creature begets offspring according to its kind. Christ, in his deity, however, is not a created being. He had no beginning, but is as timeless as God himself. Therefore, the begetting mentioned in Psalm 2 and its cross-references has nothing to do with the origin of either his deity or his humanity. 
but it has everything to do with him sharing the same essence as the Father. And so when you see these quotes in the New Testament at the time of his baptism, of his birth, of his transfiguration, of his resurrection, today I've begotten you, the idea is not that he's becoming the Son at any one of these times, but rather that he is being declared to be what he's always been. It's saying, you are truly the Son from all eternity. They express his approval, the approval of the Father and the endorsement, not the initial appointment of the second person of the triune God. The resurrection didn't make him the Son, but declared him to be the Son. All of this speaks then to the legitimacy of his reign. All right, so come back. Come back up for air. <gasps> okay, why, why all this? Because there is a unity with the Father. This one has the right to rule because he's truly God. He's the eternal Son. Father, Son, and Spirit equally, fully sharing the divine essence and yet distinct from one another. And so this one is legitimate. This one is a legitimate one. And yet he's also man because God tasked Adam to rule the creation. And so he's given man the task to rule the earth and, and yet it is his son who's the eternal God and yet also man who we will actually see the successful rule of, from planet earth that God intentionally uh, intended from the beginning in Genesis 1. It will be successful in the son because of the legitimacy of his reign. So that's the legitimacy of it. This one's shorter. The scope of his reign. The scope of his reign. He's a legitimate one. Now, where, where will his reign be? Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, so a son receives an inheritance from his father. And here, the Davidic son receives a kingdom from his father. This is the the coming universal worldwide rule of Messiah. Notice that phrase there. It says, the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. That's a common phrase in the Old Testament. Psalm 72, Psalm, uh, Micah 5, verse 4, Zechariah 9, 10. It's speaking of Messiah's coming kingdom in the future, and it's saying it'll be to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. It is universal. It is global. And that's what he's saying here. This is the scope of it. Why would the son, though, need to ask for the nations to be given to him? Are they not his already? Well, yes, as the eternal son, but not yet as the resurrected incarnate son. He's, he's at the right hand of the father until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Until he says, go. And then he will rule from Jerusalem. Satan offered the nations to Christ in his temptation in Luke 4. And Jesus didn't contest the offer. He'd be like, what are you talking about? But he did see it as the terms of the offer. Jesus knew that the cross had to come before the crown. Substitution before the reign. The reign of Christ will be global, is the idea. And that's the idea. The scroll to the earth in Revelation 5. Who has the right to the title deed of the earth? To rule and reign over the earth and the universe? Only Christ, the God-man. And then we see the force of his reign in verse 9, the force of it. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This brings us back to Genesis 49 and language used there. Genesis 49.10, which says a prophecy that Jacob gives to his sons and specifically to Judah. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a contrast being made uh, between the strength of the king's weapon and the weakness of the objects being broken. So be like taking a baseball bat to a coffee mug. You know, just smash! <laughs> it's gone. It's pieces. That's this idea, smashing them into pieces with a rod. It's like pottery. It's like, you know, you, you make it out of clay, you put it into a hot uh, furnace, it, it hardens, but here is a rod that smashes it. It's like the chaff that is blown away in Psalm 1. The rebellious in Psalm 2 are broken like pottery. And Daniel 2 speaks about the nations when Christ comes being smashed by this rock and it will, 
it'll disintegrate them. There's actually an Egyptian custom, Alan Ross uh, mentions in his commentary, in which the name of each city under the king's dominion was written on a little votive jar, and it was placed in the temple of his god. And then if the people in the city rebelled, the pharaoh could smash that city's little jar in the presence of the deity. And, and we don't know this, but he says the psalmist may be drawing on that imagery to stress how easily the king, with all his authority in heaven behind him, will crush the rebellion swiftly. Just, oh yeah, here's the representation. Wham! And this imagery is used throughout. Uh, it's especially used in Revelation when Christ returns. And there's a few spots in Revelation. Revelation 19, though, verse 15 is the key one. And as Christ returns, he will then dash his enemies to pieces. Keep in mind that the consummation of Christ's kingdom and his reign does not come in a context of the world joyfully welcoming Christ to say, come and reign over us. But rather, his second coming comes in the context of the world clenching their teeth and gnashing their teeth against his rule. And yet he comes nevertheless to establish his rule upon the earth. Though we do not see all things in subjection to Jesus now, his reign is certain. God has decreed the end from the beginning, and so this decree will happen. Now, for us as believers, how reassuring to know the certainty of Christ's coming reign. I mean, we look around us and we go, wow, this is like just so much chaos, and yet God is sovereign over that, and yet where is the story heading? It is heading to Christ ruling over the earth, ruling over with perfect righteousness, and so this is such an, an encouragement, a reassuring of believers. And so it, this should be such a, a reorientation for us to bring us peace. Unless, of course, you're still among those in verses 1 to 3 in rebellion. And then you would be among those dashed in pieces when he returns. And yet that's not where the psalm ends, thankfully. It could this God of wrath and anger and judgment upon rebellious sinners is also a God of patience and mercy and goodness. And so we finally see in this fourth part, in, a, in our fourth speaker, we see the Spirit's urgent appeal for refuge. The Spirit's urgent appeal for refuge in verses 10 to 12. The speaker changes again. And why do I call it the Spirit's urgent appeal? Well, because Acts 4, 25 and 26 says this who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and it goes on to quote Psalm 2. So David wrote this, but it was said by the Holy Spirit. So both of them are the authors. And here the Spirit is appealing, urging. What is he urging? Well, it is urging the rebellious to humble themselves before it is too late. This final section of the psalm issues five commands for those who have committed cosmic treason. And they address the whole person, mind, affections, and will. First is an appeal to the mind. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. In other words, don't be so foolish to think that you can oppose God. Don't be so absurd. And then an appeal to the affections. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, you might think rejoicing with trembling, it's like an odd combination. Like, how do those go together? Rejoicing with trembling. Ha ha ha! Like, that's what we think, but that, that's not the idea here. Here's what one writer said, Alan Ross said, Like the Israelites at the foot of the fiery mountain, the devout are drawn to Yahweh in adoration and amazement because his power is glorious. But they also shrink back because the power is frightening. This same tension between adoration and fear occur with human responses to other things as well, such as dangerous animals, tornadoes, or natural wonders. In The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, <clears throat> you're probably familiar with this scene if you've read that book. Mr. Beaver uh, says, uh, as he's introducing Aslan, uh, they've never met Aslan at this point, which is a good reason you should read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe before the magician's nephew, uh, even though C.S. Lewis said it otherwise. He was wrong. Uh, you know, but 
Uh, but it's like you, you get to meet Aslan as you're supposed to meet him in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And here, Mr. Beaver's anticipating that time when they meet him. And he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Luce is trying to capture this sense of dread and trembling and yet rejoicing. There's this wonder at who this is, being drawn to him, and yet also a trepidation. And so we see this appeal to the affection, serve Yahweh with fear, rejoice with trembling, and then appeal to the will. Serve Yahweh means become a slave of Yahweh. You know, the reality is, Romans 6 tells you, you're a slave either way. You're a slave of your sin, of unrighteousness, or a slave of God. Who do you think is a better master? <laughs> your creator or the sin that's enslaving you? The response called for here is similar to that of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 as he submits to, to Yahweh. And then he says here, kiss the son. What does that mean, kiss the son? Well, kiss in this context is a physical act that indicates one's homage and submission. It's an, in, it's an outward expression that indicates one's worship, one's submission, John 5, 23 says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It would signify one's desire to reconcile with this king, coming humbly, a receiving of him as one's king. And don't you love the scriptures? They don't just say, do it. They give you a reason. Why should you kiss the Son? First, because there is danger to avoid. It says, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And so here's this danger to avoid, the wrath of God, the anger of God. But not only that, here's another reason. Second, because there is delight to experience. There's danger to avoid and delight to experience. He says, blessed or happy are all who take refuge in him. One writer said this, both danger and delight are held out to move them to repentance. Here's an instructive lesson for us. As we seek to appeal for others to come to Christ, both of these are useful and good. Sometimes the scripture uses one, a warning. Sometimes the scripture uses the other, a wooing. But both are legitimate means to implore someone to come to Christ. So we warn sinners and woo sinners in coming to Christ. So warn them of God's wrath and judgment and being a, having God against you, but also to woo them with the glory of Christ and the, the wonder of Christ, the beauty of Christ. And so that's what he does here. It's such a perfect example of a, of a gospel invitation. Oh, don't be so foolish. Don't be so arrogant to fight against your creator. His wrath will quickly be kindled. And yet, this God is so good. He's so delightful. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so he brings both of them in his appeal. The spirit is so balanced in this way. A warning and a wooing. So if self-sovereignty is the essence of sin, then repentance must be surrender to the king. It must be saying, you are God, <laughs> I am not. It must be a humbling that we have rebelled against this God and now coming to humble ourselves and repent of our way and receive this king as our own. This attitude in verses 1 to 3 that began the psalm is how every human being begins. Everyone begins here. But it's psalm ends quite differently, and, and you can end quite differently as well. Though we be born with the attitude of verses 1 to 3, we can all respond to the appeal of verses 10 to 12 by God's grace. He calls us to acknowledge our rebellion against, the God, against God the King, to shift our allegiance to Him, 
and to make peace with him by taking refuge in his son. What an encouragement for us. The days in which we live. And honestly, unless the Lord does some incredible revival, darker days may be ahead. The government may get worse. And yet we'll come back to this again. I wouldn't see it unlikely that we have to preach Psalm 2 to ourselves again in this context because of something that happens where we have to realign ourselves and say, this is true, this is right. We are on the right side of history because the Son has been promised the world and we are in the Son. And so we will reign with him on the earth in righteousness. Alistair Begg said this, there is no refuge from him except the refuge that is in him.